0: Well, it's good to be back uh, preaching to you again this morning uh, after two weeks away with uh, caring for my wife, and thank you for your support and your care for us um, as she's gone through this surgery, and uh, we're thankful for the Lord that he's been faithful to provide care and uh, healing, and so I wanted to just take a moment and say thank you for being a church that loves other people well. Uh, It's very, uh, very meaningful, and and I'm very thankful for it. Um, If you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. As you turn there, I want to remind you this morning that, uh, that there is a culture in our world today that are engaged in something you may not have ever really focused on called the World Cup. If you're not a soccer culture like my family is, if you don't have a great working knowledge of the Women's World Cup, it it started on Friday. Uh, Soccer is the the ball, it's multicolored, we kick it with our feet. Um, And it's actually, it's a global soccer tournament that is one of the most watched sports across the globe. Uh, as a soccer dad, as a, as a, a, a former soccer player, um, not on any important level, just to clarify with all disc- full disclosure, um, we, at our family, we, we play soccer, we love soccer, and, and so this is obviously a, a big deal for us, it may not be for you, but I want you to consider for a moment how prestigious something like the World Cup is uh, across the world. Some people say that the World Cup trophy is actually more important than the Olympic gold medals that can be earned in the same sport. Matter of fact, in 2006, the World Cup in Germany garnered a TV viewership of over 26 billion people, far exceeding the global audience of the Olympics, making the World Cup the most watched sport across the globe. Now, the 23 women from the U.S. that are going to be representing uh, us in, in women's soccer, they've won this tournament three times in 91, 99, and 2015. And that is a big deal for them. They will forever, those players will forever be remembered as World Cup champions. They probably grew up as young children, as young girls, Uh, practicing day in and day out, week in and week out. Uh, Their parents devoted tons of money and time uh, for coaches and uh, uniforms and traveling and all this thing culminates to this end goal of the World Cup. You ask any educated soccer player, the end goal for them is, man, I want to play professionally and I would love to win the World Cup. And I think you would probably hear that across the globe as well. But let me ask you a question. Let's say that the, the U.S. Uh, wins this year, and they get to take that trophy home. and What's the end of that? I mean, where does that really go? First of all, there's only one trophy. It's not like the Olympics where everyone gets a medal. But now that they've uh, you know, accomplished such a goal... With all that effort and with all that work, where does that end up? They have a reputation, a reputation that provides uh, some accolades in the community, in the world. Wherever they go, they'll be known as World Cup champions. But when they're 80 years old in a nursing home and they can't feed themselves, is there a resident next to them really going to care that they won the World Cup? I mean, if they're dying of cancer in a hospital bed, is clinging to the World Cup going to give them any comfort or any satisfaction for their soul? And then, of course, when they die, can they take that with them into eternity? Is there a place reserved in heaven for NFL Hall of Famers or World Cup champions? No. See the glory and the honor of a World Cup trophy and championship is sadly not enough to satisfy the human soul. Now, as someone who loves the sport, I love to see people strive for for a great goal and 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 do their best and, and accomplish such a goal with with uh, blood, sweat, and tears. And, and And I like to cheer these teams on, but sadly, I watch uh, with with oftentimes disappointment knowing that so many of these people will cling to those things and in the the midst of that throughout their lives be unsatisfied because they were created for more. They were created, we are created for more than World Cup trophies. We were created more for successful careers. We were created more or for more than just having a, 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 a home full of children or a great marriage. The ultimate reason by which we were created was to give God eternal glory that he deserves. Glory is, is the honor, it's the esteem that, that is due to his name because he made us, he, he created all things including us, and we were created to worship him. And before sin, there was this perfect relationship between man and God. But when sin enters the world, it changes so much. And, and, and a, a, a world, a, a humanity that comes after Adam and Eve, starting from Adam and Eve, are seeking things that bring them satisfaction. They are seeking their personal glories that never satisfy And so uh, a gold trophy will perish away. Our loved ones will fade in sickness and disease and die our accomplishments, the things that we fill up our garage with, all these things can fade. And and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer this morning, but I want us to focus on what the scripture teaches us about where we find our hope and where we find our, 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 our true satisfaction. And that, as we've sang this morning, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you may be chasing on this earth this morning will not fulfill your true desires, the desires by which you were made. You were made to worship God alone and only by being reconciled to him through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will you truly find satisfaction of your soul. And in that satisfaction, the Lord Jesus Christ will change you in such a way, supernaturally, that the things of this world won't matter anymore. And if he does give you such accomplishments as a World Cup trophy, you will hold that trophy high, giving praise and glory to the Lord Jesus for all the efforts or all the energies that he gave you in, in, in accomplishing such a feat. But we are here this morning not to learn about soccer, but to learn about Jesus and how we can find satisfaction in him. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, we look and read through the life of Christ. We've been studying through the life of Christ section by section as if we were watching a movie about his life. We wanted to start at the beginning and we want to conclude to the end of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today, we're in John chapter 12. And so if you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there yet, we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, just to catch you up, we are, as I said, following the life of Christ, and He has uh, lived this life uh, on the earth a, a three year life or uh, three year ministry. Uh, some, most people believe a 33 year life before he dies upon the cross and in this three year ministry on the earth, he has traveled around in the areas surrounding Jerusalem and he has ministered and he has done miracles and he has taught in the synagogues and the temple and he has uh, proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. And now we're coming to the end of his public ministry and we've just studied how he enters into uh, the, the city of Jerusalem and the people are praising him and they're, they're, they're singing his praises because they had been told throughout their history that a Messiah would come. This Messiah would be their rescuer. This Messiah would be their redeemer. And what all that means is that they were hoping and praying by God's promises to come to to fruition that the nation of Israel would once again uh, be the the nation among nations. And so many of the Jews in Jesus' day were seeking a Messiah, an anointed one, but it was more like a great warrior king who would come and rule and reign over other nations like Rome and Greece and so on and so forth. And Jesus comes into the city and he's mounted on a donkey, which is very significant because it was the way that kings had come in in the past. King Solomon particularly rode into the city on a donkey. It's a, it was a symbol of humility. But really and truly, the people wanted a king not on a donkey, they wanted him on a horse. They want him to, to come in ruling and reigning as this warrior who would defeat the Romans and, and end their oppression and give them this great prominence and glory. Truth be told, folks, the, the Jews in Jesus' day weren't seeking anything different than we were, that we are today seeking our own glory. For us, it may be personal glory, it may be nationalistic glory, it may be political glory, it may be glory just among your family and friends. You wanna be honored, you wanna be esteemed. You wanna be held in high regard. And the Lord Jesus came and he flipped the script on that and says, if you wanna follow me, you're gonna have to reverse that thinking. But you can't reverse that thinking on your own, I'm gonna have to reverse that thinking for you. Because Jesus came not at this political messiah, Jesus came as a spiritual messiah. He came to fix the true problem. The true problem of sin, which is that we are all seeking our own glory, and thus seeking our own glory, that sinful rebellion and rejection of God is what needs to be cured. It's what needs to be healed in our lives. If we were created to worship and glorify God alone, but we are seeking our own glory, then we have a big problem. We are enemies of God. And as enemies of God, we have to be transformed to love and adore and and seek after him. And so when we believe in Christ and we trust in Christ, we can truly give him the glory that he deserves as the eternal son of God. But sadly, Jesus, upon entering the city... He approaches kind of this, this high plain, looking down upon this vast city full of some, some estimate over a million people that had come in for the, the Passover festival. And he's looking down and he's seeing all these people, and he understands what this city represents to the Jewish people. And he sees the temple, and he can understand what that temple represents, and he weeps. He weeps because the people had rejected him as the true Messiah. He weeps because the city was full of rebellion and enemies of God, not his people. <coughs> and he weeps because he knows that the only way to, to win the victory of sin is to give his life. And so that's the theme this morning. <coughs> The theme is that Jesus Christ, to truly be glorified and to truly be honored in this world, must do what none of us would seek to do to receive glory. He must die to receive glory. That the glory of God is bound up and wedded to the death of Christ upon the cross. And we're going to see how today in John chapter 12, First, of all, we want to see that there is a glory in this great plan of redemption. This great plan that you and I are a part of. We don't get up in the morning and, and necessarily think about it as the first moment of uh, thought of our brain that, that God is uh, working all things out in the world and we are just a small part of a grand plan that He is bringing to fruition. But it's true. We are a part of this plan. And there's a glory in that plan that Jesus Christ is glorified as he carries out that plan in the world. So as I said, as I read earlier, Jesus is coming into the temple or coming into the city. And like I told you a couple weeks ago, the the vast amount of pilgrims that came into the city were so... uh, Uh, amazed at Jesus, that we can imagine that they were literally pressing in on him as he came riding in on the donkey. There wasn't a few people over here and a few people over there, that there were just tons of people who had heard about this Jesus. And and just like any of us, I mean, if one of you see something in the parking lot and and act crazy, and then you're like, oh my gosh, look, we're all going to Completely stop listening to me, and we're going to turn our attention. If one guy runs out, we're all probably going to run out to see what's going on, right? That's just in human nature. Well, Jesus had garnered this popularity and this amazement from the people. So imagine he's coming in to the city, and all these Jewish people are surrounding him. But in John chapter 12, verse 20, John reveals this This second part of the story that it wasn't just jews that were coming up to jesus but it was gentiles as well john uses the word greeks in john chapter 12 verse 20 that that now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some greeks that's a a phrase not necessarily meaning that that these people were from greece They might be most likely Greek-speaking, but but more importantly, he's teaching that they're Gentiles. They're outside the Jewish nation. They're like Cornelius or the Roman guards, the people that oftentimes were God-fearers that showed interest in the God of Israel. And we know that for two reasons. One, because it says that they were going up to the feast. They took time out of their schedule to literally travel with the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now they're not doing that as spectators. They're doing that more, most likely because they're called what the Bible says as God fearers. Maybe not full proselytes uh, proselytes, but they are, are 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 people that that are uh, they are following the the God of Israel. They are going to the temple to worship. It it would be be most likely that they are maybe turning away from this polytheism which, of worshiping many gods that the Greeks and the Romans did and that they are focusing on and worshiping the God of Israel alone. And this was somewhat common, so much so that when the temple was erected, there's a court outside the temple or inside the, the temple courts called the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could go. And matter of fact, there's like a a wall that divides the court of the Gentiles for where the Jews could go. And and that's considered the wall of hostility because there was a, a clear division between Jew and Gentile. And in the New Testament, Paul's talking about the work of Christ, and he says that Christ tears down the wall of hostility so that Jews and Gentiles together can come to Christ and worship. And a side disclaimer, if you're not from the nation of Israel this morning, then you're a Gentile. So that should mean something very important to you this morning. And so they're, they're coming and, and they want to see Jesus. And so they come to Philip, most likely because Philip has a, a Greek name. This is not Philip the evangelist from the book of Acts. This is Philip, one of the first uh, disciples that followed Jesus. He lived in the same hometown as Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So they all have a close relationship. These Greeks come to Philip probably because not only does he have a Greek name, but he speaks Greek. And they're like, hey, man, can you get us in contact with Jesus? And Philip's like, sure. So he goes to Andrew, who seemed to have a closer relationship with Jesus among the 12. And they, they, take, uh, they go and tell Jesus. And that's all you hear of these Greek people. That's all you hear. You don't hear a dialogue between Jesus and these Greeks or Gentiles You don't even really see that they go and see Jesus. They want to see him, that's all we're told. Why is that important? Because Jesus' response is not, let me see him. His response is, tell them to get out of here because they're dirty Gentiles and I don't want to have anything to do with them. No, his response is this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that's extremely significant. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus has yet to say that. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he has spoken to people in such a way where he has told him, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Remember when he told his mom that? And he's like, yo, woman, my time has not yet come. You're telling me to turn this water into wine. What's he, is he being disrespectful? No, he's just being firm to say, I I cannot yet reveal myself publicly because the time has not yet come for me to give myself as a sacrifice. Remember, even his brothers, which it's, it's interesting that his family are the ones pressing him to be public. Maybe they wanted to ride the coattails of popularity. But later on in John chapter 7, his brothers come to him and they say, hey, go into the, uh, Jerusalem and expose yourself publicly and, and show everyone that you're the, what you can do, these miraculous works. And he's like, no, my time has not yet come. And that's always this great mystery to some people. But now Jesus is saying, no, my, my time has come. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why does he say that? I think it's purposeful because what Jesus is doing is he has entered a city, a city of Jews that has rejected him, and these Gentiles are now coming to him. And what we're seeing is this full scope of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that only Jews and Gentiles, they will both be, uh, have access to the Lord Jesus Christ, but only those who believe. A nation that that is merely just a nation won't receive spiritual redemption just because they're Jews. No, they have to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus as the eternal Son of God. They have to put their faith in him, just like you and I do today. In this hour that has come is Jesus is acknowledging in the sovereignty of God that throughout the span of history, all the things that had been planned for God to redeem a people, a people of both Jews and Gentiles, believing and trusting of Jesus, that that time for Him to give His life for them had now come. Think about this the time had not yet come when God promised the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. The time had not yet come when God promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The time had not yet come when God promised Moses that a greater prophet would come after him. Or when David was told that his son would sit on the throne forever. Or when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah prophesied of the coming one and yet never saw him. And the time had not yet come when Israel didn't even hear from a man or from a man of God or from the Lord himself through those prophets for over 400 years. And even Jesus in his own ministry had come into the world, healed the lame and the blind and the sick. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead and yet still continued to say his time and yet had yet not come. Why? Because his time to be glorified is wedded to his death upon the cross. Because there is glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Not glory in the wooden structure of the cross. Not glory in the hill the cross was placed upon. Glory in what the cross symbolizes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus is... The pure reflection of the glory of God for us. We can see God's uh, power and his majesty as we look all around us. The vast oceans, towering mountains, immeasurable expanse of the universe. All these are glimpses of God's glory for human eyes and, and brains and understanding. I mean, we see those things and we, we should marvel at what God has done. But there has never been in the history of the world anything that compares to the perfect glory that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. He is, as Hebrews says, the radiance of the glory of God and the, act, the exact imprint of his nature. That the Lord Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you want to see God? You want to know God? You want to understand God? Then you need to read and study and know Christ. But Jesus' point when he says, My hour has, The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's saying, "Look, the this final act of glorifying the Father is the faithful death upon the cross that I'm about to engage in, so that sinners will be saved and ultimately God will be glorified." Hold your place in John. You probably need to turn like 2 pages. If you've never read John chapter 17, I would encourage you to do so immediately. Look at the first 4 verses. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's amazing because Jesus is basically acknowledging so many things there, and I could spend a whole lot of time just on that passage, but you'll notice the the repetitive word glory, glorify glory, all tied to two things. His obedience to live a perfect life being faithful in every way, fulfilling the laws of God where we won't and we can't obey perfectly the the law of God and the word of God. So he lived this perfect life. He taught the authority of God as he went around. He demonstrated the power of God in his ministry to the sick and the helpless and the oppressed and all those things that he was doing in that earthly ministry, he says, I've accomplished them and they are bringing glory to you. But then he says, now glorify me in in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Well, how's he going to Do that. He's going to do that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus, in his faithfulness to carry out the mission of God to the crucified end, was how Jesus would bring glory to the Father's name. It's an unforgettable picture for us of this intimacy between Father and Son and Spirit. That Jesus being faithful to the end, even in his own death, so that this plan of redemption could be carried out. To the world, that is the craziest recipe for glory. Hey, you want to be glorified? Go sacrifice your life for someone else. No, I'm good. I'd rather work hard every day of my life and try to earn my own glory. That's what the world says. I like to prove to myself that I can do it and just earn and heap that glory upon myself. Jesus is like, no, be humble, serve other people, sacrifice for the needs of others. Why? Because that's what I'm going to do, and that's the recipe for glory. And it's not glory for you, it's glory for the one who made you. And so his obedience to suffer is one aspect of the glory of the cross. But also, the glory of the cross shows us and brings uh, to clear understanding the character of God. You want to honor your parents? Speak well of them. When you're talking to someone and, and they're asking you about your folks and you speak well of your parents, man, my parents are, are faithful people. They, they care for me. They fed me well. You should see my pictures in middle school. I was, you know, I was fed well, you know. I'm thankful for them. Man, they love the Lord. They, they, are, they are constantly giving of themselves. And in speaking well of my parents, I'm giving them this earthly honor, right? Well, Jesus, in, in, in not just speaking well of, of the Father, but actually giving his life, he is displaying through the cross the very character of God. He is showing us these, these attributes and these characteristics of the one true God. Like, for instance, he's showing us holiness. Holiness. That God is holy and He's too pure to, to look upon sin. God's people that He drew to Himself, He commanded them to separate from the pagan nations who worship false gods. He says, You should worship Me and Me alone, to turn away from false gods and false idols. Because He was holy and righteous. He demonstrated that with things like the temple where there was a a clear separation between God and man because God is holy and without sin and man is full of sin. And thus sin cannot even dwell in the presence of God. And because of that, because of that Purity of holiness and that wretchedness of sin. There's a, there's a dividing line, there's a separation between God and man. And the only way for there to be restoration is through the cross. Because the cross is the, the means by which God uh, is, is enacting not only or demonstrating not only his holiness, but also his justice. He's saying, I'm holy, and I've created you to be holy, but you've sinned and rebelled against me. And I must punish sin. I cannot let sinners go free, or I'm an unjust God, so I I must punish sin, so how will I do that? I will send my son, and I will punish my son on your behalf. That's pure, holy justice. And that's what the Lord did for you. That the cross of Christ glorifies the character of God in seeing his holiness and seeing his justice and lastly, seeing his unconditional love. That Jesus came and he gave his life faithfully, obediently to the Father, Seeking to glorify the Father in his obedience. And he did so for the enemies of God. He did so for those who spit upon his name, who shake our fists to God, who were like the Jews crying out, Crucify him, crucify him. That's not the Jesus that we want. We want the political Jesus. We want the Jesus who is accepting of all people, even in sin. We want the Jesus who is a a great politician, the, the Jesus who is uh is maybe a great athlete. We we want Jesus to be all these things, and we are turning away from the Jesus that is clearly defined for us in the Bible. But he gave his life and he sacrificed it. And he's telling us here he sacrificed it for the glory of the Father. And I think what's important for us to take away from that is that the cross of Jesus Christ is not about you. You're a recipient of the effects of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross But the cross of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection was for the purpose of carrying out a plan his father sent him to accomplish for the glory of his father. I mean, when Jesus is on the cross, he doesn't look down upon the world and go, here you go, people. What does he do? He does two things. He cries out to the Father, it is finished. And then he looks up to the Father and he says, receive my spirit. Because his focus and his attention is on doing what he was uh, sent to do by the, as the obedient son. And he's wanting to return to the Father again. What an intimacy. And what a glory. We could say it like this. The cross was for his people, but it was not about his people. It was for God's glory. And secondly, not only the plan of redemption, but the glory is also seen in the people of redemption. Yes, even you, the people of redemption who believe and trust in Christ. Look at what this... Look at what Jesus is teaching us in verse 24. He gives us those, those infamous words, those, those, uh, those rattling words, truly, truly, like pay attention, listen to this, similar to behold, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus makes this announcement as this predetermined time for him to die has now come, but he's now also illustrating how his death produces eternal effects for us. His death on the cross as a substitute for sinners is illustrated in this farming agricultural analogy where he says if a grain of wheat, if a seed falls upon uh let's say the, a, a slab of concrete, if I could paraphrase here, it's just gonna wither and die and turn into dust. But if it falls into the earth, it dies and the germination process begins and what does it do? It produces more seed. Maybe if you're driving down Germantown Road at a specific time of the year, and you see the sunflowers that they they plant and they grow. It's hard not to imagine that every one of those little sunflowers grew from one seed. And Jesus is making this analogy with wheat. You don't understand wheat, you just eat it. I barely understand it. It's got gluten in it, I think. But, But the the truth is transcendent right I mean Jesus is saying as I go like the seed and die in the earth I produce fruit and literally it says bear much fruit or bear many seeds and so Jesus is saying that in his glorification of dying upon the cross he is also glorified in the people for which he died Because you and I are the seeds of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We are the very produce of the spiritually changed life that he has brought through his sacrifice upon the cross. He saves us and he changes us. He gives us new life in him. The theological word is regeneration. And what is the potential that as we are planted as those seeds, we also produce and multiply? It's an unlimited potential. That we also, because of the power of Christ in the resurrection, because of the change in our hearts and lives, his death and resurrection provides a way for for his people to grow and to expand across the globe, both Jews and Gentiles, because he provided a new abundant life in his name. And it's because of the cross that he changes his enemies into his children. And so he turns to, in that, that thinking and he basically says, look, I have taught you that, that throughout my ministry that, that my life is, is destined to die and to suffer. And in that suffering, I'm going to be obedient until that suffering is completed. And in the same way, if you are truly these seeds that result from my death that has sprouted into new life, then you too will live lives of obedience and you will acknowledge and accept the suffering that might come your way. I mean, the theme here is death and the obedience to death. And so in verse twenty five, as we are the if we trust and believe as followers of Jesus and we are these seeds that have come through the effects of his work on the cross, then we will be people who hate our lives in this world because we are clinging to the eternal life that Jesus has provided. Now, when he says hating our life in this world, he's not encouraging you to be the curmudgeon, right? The, the, negative, the negative Nancy, the, you know, the, the sarcastic Sam, whatever you want to say. He, he wants you to, to live life and enjoy this life, but he wants you to understand that if you are truly transformed, your mind and your heart is transformed, then you are seeking things not of this world because you don't belong to this world. And thus you will not cling to the cares of of this life, but instead you will cling to the, the spiritual things of heaven. And this is what the cross of Christ does. It creates a new spiritual life in people. And we are united with him. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How are we gonna be with him also if we are not united with him through his death and resurrection? And so I'll say it like this. A person who is regenerated through Jesus Christ or saved, as we like to say in the church, that is a person who is knitted to Christ. We belong to him. He's done a great work to purchase us from the slavery of sin. And we go with him wherever he is. And this unity is through the cross and for our daily lives until we are united with him fully in heaven. We find comfort in that unity We find hope, and it's the motivation that drives us to obey as Christ obeyed. I mean, the the, the idea is that Jesus is faithfully following this timeline that the Father has set before him, and he is being faithful. The hour has come, Father, I'm here to be faithful to what you've called me to do. Fast forward to his people, his seeds what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to, to follow him. To be obedient as he was obedient. To see God's word and to keep his commandments. We bring Christ's great glory in our obedience because it points to the obedience that he had with the Father as he walked to the cross. Every time we obey God's word, it's not because we're earning salvation. We're not trying to please God so that we'll have favor in his sight. We are obeying him because our actions of obedience are memorial stones to Christ's steps toward Calvary and his faithfulness to die for us as sinners. Another analogy that, or illustration that we fairly understand Well, and that is, we are sheep following the shepherd, daily walking with him, trusting in him, not going, I'm a sheep, I can do whatever I want, I'll just go down this other path. No, trusting the shepherd, because as some people have said throughout the church history, we're ignorant sheep, right? We don't know which way to go, right or left, which path is healthy or safe. Sheep can't even heal their own infirmities. They have to have the shepherd to take care of them if they get, they, they get hurt, to protect them from uh, predators in the wild. And so if we belong to Christ, we will obey him as he obeyed the Father and thus bring him glory because of his work on the cross. John said it this way, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And in the same way that this is connected to the obedience of Christ, it's also connected to the death of Christ. That as we live as believers in Jesus Christ, we too are experiencing death day by day. Not a death to somehow atone for our sins or pay God back for the sins that he uh, granted forgiveness upon. But we are dying day by day to the old life by which we live. Luke said it, Jesus said it another way in Luke's gospel that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow after him. It is a continual dying to ourselves day by day of the affections and the cares for the world that we must turn away from as we continue to struggle with the flesh and the new life in Christ. And John says that too in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, let's be real clear as I finish up. And that's not normally like the 30-minute finish-up conclusion of a sermon. It's just like I'm about to be done. As John writes these things, as Jesus says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, please don't misunderstand that these are not steps to salvation. Jesus is not saying, if you turn away from the things of this world, you will be saved. He is not saying, if you just uh, pull up your bootstraps and, and transform your life by, by doing good to other people and, and turning away from bad things, if you just counterbalance the sin in your life with really charitable things, then you will be pleasing to the sight of God. Folks, that is impossible because remember that in God's justice he must punish sin and in punishing sin he cannot let a single sin go unpunished and you cannot bear the wrath of God for your own sin. The eternal son of God had to bear the wrath of God for you and he is able to bear it because he is the eternal son of God. And so as we say, Jesus is our substitute, trust in his work upon the cross, die to yourself day by day because you love him and because you belong to him, not because you're trying to save yourself. And in doing so, by trusting in Christ and believing in him, you will be saved. you will belong to him and you will desire to glory in the cross of Christ and not in yourself or the things of this world. So can I encourage you this morning and invite you to believe in Jesus? Can I invite you this morning to turn away from the glory of this world, the things of this world that grab our attention The things in this world that you think you need that in your heart of hearts and in the deepest recesses of your spirit-filled conscience you don't need. And instead, seek the things that belong to Christ, trusting in him fully for your salvation, for the hope and the comfort and the joy of being satisfied in him alone. And as you believe in him, you are equally and at the same time turning away from the things of this world and the sin in your own life. So as the Bible portrays it, we invite you to come to Jesus by faith, which is trust, and through repentance, which is turning from, uh, away from God and turning toward him. And so by faith and repentance, we encourage you this morning to believe and trust in Christ alone. And as the church, those of us who have decided and and committed to Christ by his grace and for his glory, may we live day by day this week in the glory of the cross and what he's accomplished, being amazed by his grace and his love for us. Let's pray.